nurture these other potential avenues. Because ultimately, both art and science, I think, is about knowing ourselves and the world coming to know itself. From Stockholm Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn, this is The LPV Show, a weekly discussion from the world of photography and photo books. Here's your host, Brian Formals. I, I probably should really take a proper class because that's, I can't imagine going up on doing TED Talk and running <laughs> like all those people. Yeah, I just rehearse, but I mean, that, but I haven't, but that's what I'm saying. I haven't watched it. Uh-huh. So. Oh, it's good. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Thanks liked, very much. <laughs> I liked your Long Now Foundation talk as oh, well. Oh, thanks. That's so, actually the first place I heard about oh, it. Oh, so a while ago. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, that's cool. Nice. Um, the, where was, so where, when was that? When was that lot? was also in 2010. Uh-huh. So my time as a speaker was the, the schedule or the way it ramped up was kind of crazy. I gave my first uh-huh. proper talk on the oldest living things in April of 2010. July, I was speaking at TED. Wow. So that was my second talk. Holy uh, smokes. Yeah, yeah. And then later that year, that's when I did the Long Now talk. Uh, yeah. Wow. So yeah. it just kind of all happened really quickly. Yes. Which is kind of, which is exciting. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, you kind of get your the, the big break on it, but... Um, well, it's an interesting thing because yeah. also I was maybe halfway through the project mm-hmm. at that point, and if I were to give a talk now, it would be very different from the one that mm. I gave then. So there was so much learning that happened between that that time mm-hmm. and and finishing finishing the book and getting to where I am now. Yeah, so, I imagine. Yeah. So we're we're here with Rachel Sussman. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I mean, it's really where I've when I started the podcast, you're one of the top. Like people, I was like, we gotta have her on. We gotta have oh, her on. So we've been waiting to to get you on the show. I mean, because honestly, this project, the oldest living things in the world, when that we're just talking about when it first kind of hit, and I remember seeing that, and I was like, man, this really hits a couple areas that I'm really into, like you know, good photography, landscape photography, and then this the, the scientific aspect and the very you know the time and existence and the existential threats and all of that stuff. It was all wrapped in there. So I was like, I've been looking forward to this oh, conversation. Thank you so much. Well, yeah. it's my pleasure. Yeah. So I, I guess my first question is, what is the genesis of this project? When did it kind of dawn on you that this is, you wanted to go in and do that? Was it like a flash of inspiration or was it kind of like a lot of things little building blocks leading up to it. Yeah, it's funny, you know, like talking about creativity and where ideas come from. Uh-huh. It's an interesting discussion because in some ways we want to have this, uh, like this, just the flash of inspiration, like the light bulb went on and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this idea. And in part that's true, but it's not really, you know? <laughs> so I feel like for me, the, the, there was a journey getting to the idea uh-huh. for this project. And that journey probably took a couple of years, uh-huh. if I think back. Um, but there was also a literal journey, which was this trip that I took to uh-huh. Japan in 2004. And I had just finished an artist residency at Cooper Union. I had just bought a brand new Mamiya 7-2. Um, and I got an invitation to go to Japan. And some friends of mine um, are Japanese and live in New York, but spend the summers there. They said, come stay with us in Tokyo. And then, you know, then do what you want. So I did. I spent a week there and then I thought, you know, I need to have some kind of adventure. And 
in part, I was looking, I knew I was looking for something. I just didn't know what it was yet. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was making a lot of landscape work about the relationship between humanity and nature. So these things, like things were percolating. I mean, I was actively thinking about art and science projects and had some ideas and discarded them. So all of this was in the mix for really quite a while. Um, and so, you know, I had a great time in Tokyo with my friends, but then I was traveling on my own in Japan, not speaking Japanese. And guess what? That was pretty difficult. <laughs> and so I had this moment where I almost went home, which is very uncharacteristic of me, um, and instead ended up remembering that a couple of different sources had said, oh, if you're interested in nature, you have to go visit Jomansugi. It's this supposedly 7,000-year-old tree. It lives on this remote island. And some Something in me just thought, like, why not? You know, I'm over here. This is something that felt like it gave some purpose to this travel. And so instead of packing up and going home, I packed up and went in the opposite direction. So, you know, I had to get on the train to the southernmost part, part of Kyushu. And then from there onto a ferry that was a three or four hour ferry ride. Then when you land on the island, it's a two day hike <laughs> to visit this tree. So I knew I was I was in for yeah. something. Um, and, you know, the short version of the story is I got befriended by this couple on the way over who, by the time I landed on the other side, I was staying with them at this family's home that live on the island. And they, I hiked with them to the tree, did the two-day hike. And again, I'd love to say I had this epiphany standing in front of the tree, but that's not what happened. Um, but obviously, this, was, this experience was deeply imprinted on me. And uh, I was back home in New York probably a year later telling friends over dinner, sitting, eating Thai food in, in Soho, saying, you know, telling them about this travel experience, and there was my light bulb moment. Uh, and so then the whole idea came into view, like that I would find things that would have been alive for two thousand years uh, and longer, and that I would work with scientists to do it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I, one thing that really is always kind of synthesized for me in the, when looking at this book is you can look at the picture, and it's a very beautiful picture. Tree, but like, unless you have the text, unless you have the information, it kind of could look like any other landscape, just beautiful and like, oh, that's nice. But once you see the text and you read the information, you're like, all of a sudden it's like 6,000 years old and you kind of like, your eyes go back and forth and you try to like register it, but it doesn't, I don't know, there's something weird with photography going on, whereas like you, you get that caption and then all of a sudden the the picture changes. I don't know how that works. You know, it's kind of exciting and maybe it works in other, you know, other instances where you have a story or an anecdote. But for me, like that very factual information just kind of like, it was like a head scratcher for me, you know? So when did you, when did you kind of like realize, you know, we had, you got to, this is more than just the pictures. This is the text. This is a big, like, you know, there's research going to be involved in this is that is, I imagine all of that was very integral to the project as well too. So when did you kind of really first think, all right, this is something big. I'm going to have to kind of sit down and really like, <laughs> do my research yeah, on this. Yeah, it's know? a good question. You have a lot in there that I'm mm -hmm. going to talk about. Um, so the night that I got that idea, I ran home and mm -hmm. started doing research. So first to see if anybody had done this before in the arts or the sciences mm -hmm. and was 
kind of flabbergasted to find that they hadn't because the idea seemed very simple mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So, but that really then got me thinking that I've struck upon something here that is going to resonate. So it certainly resonated with me. Mm -hmm. um, but I immediately realized I had a lot to learn. Um, and in part, you know, that was an interesting thing where I went down a path thinking I would find one scientist that would partner with me on the whole mm -hmm. project. And they very quickly recused themselves and said, oh, I'm not qualified. Like your subject matter <laughs> is too broad. So that was my first wow. sort of mind-blowing moment. I was like, oh, wait, how could I, as an artist, have more qualifications to do this project mm -hmm. than a scientist? And then I started to understand, okay, there's this is the this is the the benefit of being an artist, that I could create the parameters that I wanted to work in and work with scientists. So instead of working with one, I worked with 30. Um, and then created, I created the parameters, but used the actual science. So, in, uh, so working with them on the subjects that they are most knowledgeable about. But to your point about the titles, um, uh, on with. The, Report about the titles and the photographs. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know, I don't remember exactly when these different components sort of became so integrated into mm -hmm. it. But I knew that it was vital that you understand that the information is part of the work. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, I was approaching it like a conceptual art project more than a photography project. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a lot to say on the nature of how photography <laughs> plays in in this as well. Yeah. And, you know, and also having made a lot of landscape work and I continue to do that. I really, I really love it. Mm -hmm. But I see, you know, the natural beauty is sort of a democratic entry point into the work. It's saying there's a low barrier to entry. You're allowed in. Come in. You're welcome to come in. But, you know, see that handwritten title? That's a nod to scientific field notes. Like that's telling you something else is going on here. And so, you know, you see one of these organisms that are incredibly diminutive and you think you wouldn't think twice about it. You'd just walk right past it. But so that's where the information comes into play. And I think is in some ways more poignant than, you know, you walk through the giant sequoia forest and of course you feel something. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you can't yeah. help but not. But when you see something that you you'd have no idea that it's been around for 3,000 years or 100,000 years. Right. It really changes your perspective. Right, right, right. So uh, obviously this project had you, it took you all over the globe. And like that's not something easy to do, you know, <laughs> just jumping on a plane. I mean, that takes a lot of preparation and planning and obviously like funding. I mean, so this is like, there's just monumental challenges all over on this project in terms of just like, pure logistics of it. How, I mean, was there a point where you, did you like, how am I going to do this? Like, you know what I mean? I mean, that would be the first thing is like, I, I feel like I get a lot of ideas, but like, oh, is this even, can I even execute this? I mean, there must've been just like a daunting kind of like uh, thing to realize. It's like, I'm going to have to go all over the world now. There's a few things that happened. One was that I realized right away I couldn't not do this project. <laughs> right. So that was just a given. Um, I also didn't know what I was getting into either. So, you know, you run home, start doing research. You know, I didn't know when I began it that it was going to, you know, take up a decade of my life and that I would go to every continent or, you know, I just I just didn't know. But I did know that I had to do it. So that was the, that was the primary driving force. Right. So in some ways, when that's not a question, it makes the other thing easier. Um, 
but it was incredibly difficult. Um, you know, I spent an enormous amount of time not just researching, but dealing with logistics and and trying to raise funding. And you know, I've spoken about this a couple of times before. I am I still have personal debt mm -hmm. from the project. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's not enough grant money, even when you're getting accolades in the press, like, oh, this is, we're relating to this, we appreciate it, but that doesn't equal money in the bank. Right. And I think that is a major disconnect that happens. Just, I mean, we can have a whole different discussion oh, yeah, about support for, support for the arts. Yeah. Um, but I just wasn't going to take no for uh -huh. an answer. Yeah. So. I mean, it kind of must have been that felt like, I mean, like your purpose, your kind of calling. It's like, that's, it is, it's almost like that primary art instinct. And I think it's like, that's the, that's the thing you, as an artist that you absolutely have to listen to. I mean, to me, it even goes out into the field when people are like, well, what do you take a picture of? It's like, there's that thing that just hits you. And it's like, you, you, you see it and you just take the picture. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to demystify like that deep feeling of what it is, but you just kind of know it when you feel it. Um, so you're you're traveling around the world. I, I want to know which out of all the places you went, what was like the most difficult, like either <laughs> to get to or just logistically, and it was just what was like the most challenging, like place that you went or, or, or object that you photographed, organism that you photographed. Okay, I have I have I have a top three for, mo <laughs> for most difficult. Yeah. Um. So we'll we'll count back yeah. for number coming in at number three. <laughs> um. Was yeah. my trip to Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. Um. I went there to photograph the Sri Maha Bodhi tree, which is tied to the historical Buddha. And you mm -hmm. know, going there and 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 doing the research for that had been quite complicated in part mm -hmm. because it's a religious community and not a scientific one one that has control over access to the tree. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a different kind of experience for me. Uh, but the real difficulty came the night before I was supposed to go see this tree. Mm -hmm. I slipped and fell and broke my wrist. Oh, no. Uh, so that was an incredibly harrowing experience. You know, I was taken to an open-air hospital with dogs and chickens walking around. And I'm, I'm six hours from Colombo, the main city. And that was genuinely stressful. <laughs> um, and obviously I'm fine. Um, but that was the only time that I went out into the field and did not see and photograph the thing that I went to do. Mm -hmm. So that was quite difficult. Um, other experiences, I'd say maybe weighing it in, coming in at number two would be, <laughs> would be Antarctica, just in the uh -huh. difficulty of getting there. I mean, the reward of being there was, you know many times over worth it. Um, but that took a couple of years of planning and, and discussions and coming at it wow. from different angles and doing quite a lot of research and preparation. So that was, that was definitely a challenge. Um, but the most difficult I would have to say was my experience in Greenland, um, because that's the one time over the course of this decade that I think I was truly in danger. Um, so I had an experience of being lost alone on a fjord in the middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> um, and this was due to some logistical things. And, you know, there's obviously a longer story there and I'm okay. But I learned a very important lesson about... Um, preparation, depending on others, what you do when the plan doesn't go according to plan. Um, and it was particularly poignant for me because it also connected me to the feeling of what it's like to be some of these living organisms out oh. in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, this was maybe secondary to the feeling of 
I need to be found um, <laughs> and working to make that happen, which I did. But that um, that was a, I would say, a profound uh, experience for me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's again we were talking about earlier, like when you when you learned learned to do like uh, underwater, the underwater photography. I'm just terrified of being underwater. That like being lost in the middle of nowhere has to kind of rank up on everyone's sort of like existential fears, you know? Right. Well, it's interesting because this project has made me do so many things that I was afraid of. Mm -hmm. And, but having that purpose behind it, you just do it. So I also, as a sharing that I had a fear Uh, of deep water, I never would have chosen to learn to scuba dive for fun. mm -hmm, To me, that mm -hmm. is the antithesis of fun. (laughs) And now I actually enjoy it. So having gone through the process and having a reason to do it, that's so compelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many of the places I went, I wouldn't have gone. I I didn't, I didn't want to go to Antarctica because I thought like, oh, it's just going to be so cold and so uncomfortable. And it blew my mind. I mean, my experience, I couldn't, I wouldn't trade that for anything, that experience. In fact, I went swimming in Antarctica, the polar plunge. So, (laughs) you know, these, these, so when you come face to face with these things, it's a truly different story. And I think you learn what you're capable of when you push yourself in these ways. It's, it's uh, Nike really hit on it when they say, just do it. Right. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like what's you, what's you, but I I think I kind of, I wanted to, I want to just, I want to read Hans um, Ulrich Ulrich's, just one little um, passage in his essay, because I think it kind of ties into being lost on the fjord and facing this kind of like existential like moment. Um, okay, so I'll read, just read this. Today we face multiple facets of extinction, such as the diversity in culture, language, and society through globalization, but it is one of the major problems our ecologic system is affected by. The extinction of animal and plant species happens every day and every hour. Scientists today are increasingly debating the possibility of the extinction of human civilization and even the species itself. In his book, Our Final Hour, the astronomer Martin Rees questions whether civilization will survive beyond the next hundred years. The specter of extinction is felt across the humanities, too. In philosophy, Ray Bressier finds the inevitable fact of our eventual extinction to be of considerable philosophical interest. I would say so. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, and I think that's, it's, it, I, when you kind of like start thinking beyond maybe your day-to-day life, you look up in the universe, you kind of start digging into it and you realize, oh, the sun, there's a ton of timeline, the sun's not going to be here forever, all these, so you kind of, you come like face to face with like that that immensity of you know time and space, but then also that like how are we how are we possibly going to survive? You know, like that's what I've kind of come down to me. It's like how are we possibly going to survive any of this? It's like even lucky that we're here right now. I mean, it might <laughs> yeah. it might just yeah. all be like one little <laughs> mistake, you know, fluke, you know. So, I, I mean, I guess I'm just like when you're doing this, was it a kind of a did you have a pessimistic view? Of, of human civilization of the earth or did you come out of it more optimistic that, mm. hey, they can survive this year, maybe we can too? 
I would say, I mean, it's it's certainly these are all things that I've thought about in depth uh-huh. and that, you know, this project really is an existential view, um, which I hope that it is, uh-huh. is a window into into a deeper time scale than we usually mm-hmm. uh, relate to. And so in thinking about that and thinking about these or these long lived organisms, like I think they're quite hopeful. Um, but there's a I would say I'm cautiously optimistic. Mm-hmm. If I was a pessimist, I don't think I could have made this work, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's, which is not to say that I'm not afraid for what the future holds. But in some ways, I think that all of these organisms serve as something that is sort of a beacon of hope. I mean, the fact that they live on every continent, you know, I think that there's something that belongs to all of us and that we're responsible for as well. Mm-hmm. So there's something there that I hope that they can help create an entry point into being more aware and being more connected to conservation efforts, the things that, you know, symbolically, if you're going to save this one tree or this one, you know, coral, what you need to do is save the entire ecosystem around it. And so once we start thinking on larger scales and larger time scales, it starts to become a moral considera- consideration. So to me, that's, ex- that's more than anything, the deep, deep time and long-term thinking is at the heart of the project. And that has to have some moral, positive moral value to it. I think I just read an article actually like this week where they're saying we're, we're in really, basically our brains are not wired. I think it was in Motherboard, on Vice Motherboard. They wrote our, our brains oh, are true. literally not wired for long-term thinking and it's like it becomes a major problem when we start to realize that you know these problems that you know are not like climate change might not destroy all of us right now in the next 10 years but it's something that like 100 150 but we're not capable of feeling the consequences of something that might happen so it becomes this abstract like like terror and like we don't know how to deal with like an abstract terror you know it's kind of like an asteroid coming and hitting us like well I don't know you know what are you gonna do so I I just think it's it's I mean I wonder if I always wonder if like are we getting going to get like morally smarter is it gonna be like we just become smart or is it gonna be some sort of technological breakthrough what's a really interesting Uh point and something I actually talk about in the book as well this idea that physiologically our brains just are not we haven't adapted to process time in that way. Mm-hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, when the human lifespan used to be 30 years, why would you need to know what it felt like to be alive for a thousand or 10,000 years? I mean, obviously things have changed. We've changed the planet in so many ways. Um, our evolution has not caught up with that. Um, but one of the things that I think is an interesting place where art can come in is to create a window in which to relate to these things. And that is really part of the point of this project as well that you know you hear these abstract figures and they just mean nothing they sort of float away they don't you can't internalize them but by connecting these organisms and in trying to for me trying to approach them as portraits as individuals and to reinforce that the there's by thinking of them as individuals, there's something relatable there. And so my hope is that that allows you, because it's allowed me to process things in a different way, that you think about them as an individual, because we're individuals. Right, so it's right. that, so the anthropomorphizing mm-hmm. them in a way that feels personal to whomever is taking mm-hmm. the work in. So in that way, and also just over the course, for me, over the course of 10 years, thinking about deep time, 
I see a difference in mm. what I thought about 10 years ago with complete open mind and interest and, you know, being attracted to that as a subject matter and something that seemed important and, and vital to understand on an intellectual level. Mm -hmm. And now a decade later, I feel like I've internalized it mm -hmm. in a different way. Mm -hmm. not, you know, not that I'm not caught up in, you know, whatever the wants and needs of the moment, like mm -hmm. everybody, mm -hmm. but that it's easier to visit that longer term thinking mm -hmm. that that it's a place that I can access more mm -hmm. easily. Mm -hmm. So to me that's incredibly hopeful in terms of humans being able to mm -hmm. do that, but we have to make an effort. So it's almost like educate what you're saying is like the more educated, the more meditative you became about it, like the more you're able to apply it to your thinking. Yeah. I mean it really is kind of a fundamental Phil Scholar like how how to think, you know, how to think beyond your lifespan or what. I mean I think I mean, it does seem like an amazing, one of those amazing, like, anecdotes where you would hear about how, you know, knowledge or whatever can expand your brain or whatever, and it really, like, it, it happens. And, I, like, one thing I've always, like, thought was um, kind of interesting about thinking of, like, deep time and, and all of that is, and this kind of ties into your, your project you're working on now with NASA, too, is, like, what... What are we with the technology and and going out into the, what do we have an ultimate like purpose for this? I mean, is it just is it simply the desire for knowledge, and like that knowledge comes back, and then maybe we get to that point where like oh, okay, now nice. we can think about that, <laughs> or are we looking for a new home because we know the sun's going to burn us up or whatever? Are we looking for oh, maybe it's all of these things? But what kind of like can you talk a little bit about your new project that you're working on at the Ames Research Center? Um, and what you're getting into, like deep time and space yeah. and all that good stuff. I'm going to mention a couple of bridge subjects mm -hmm, first mm -hmm. to get us into yeah, this. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, there's a couple of subjects in the book that, well, first I'll say one of my favorite st statistics from the entire project mm -hmm. is the lichen. So in Greenland, mm -hmm. um, that's the, the oldest one I photographed is around 3,000 years old. Mm -hmm. That grows one centimeter every hundred years. <laughs> and to me, that was the perfect statistic because it's that human relatability. Like mm -hmm. we can imagine what a hundred years feels like. We can mm -hmm. physically understand what a hundred years would mm -hmm. be like. Um, but that number is kind of mind-boggling. Like, what if you spent your entire lifespan growing a centimeter? <laughs> you know, continents are drifting away faster than that, like many times over. The moon is drifting away from the earth many times faster than that. Um, the other interesting thing about it is the, the Rhizocarpon Geographicum, or map lichens, have been studied by astrobiologists looking for clues to the the origins of life on Earth. So some of these lichens were sent to outer space and exposed to outer space conditions for 10 days and returned to Earth and were completely healthy and intact, which just blew my mind. Um, so that I found out when I was doing some follow-up research um, and writing the book. Um, another of my subjects, the stromatolites in Western Australia. So the stromatolites are part biologic and part geologic. So they're bound cyanobacteria. So the living uh, bacteria with non-living sediments like um, silt and sand um, combined together. What's so interesting about them is that the stromatolites first appeared around 3.5 billion years ago. So they're one of the earliest known life forms. Um, I was recently speaking with an astrobiologist who said, I don't think they're the very first life form because they're too complex. I mean, not that we think of cyanobacteria as that <laughs> complex, but I thought that was an interesting point. But at any rate, 
they did something absolutely remarkable, which is they oxygenated our atmosphere. So they performed photosynthesis, cyanobacteria performs photosynthesis. Um, it took 900 million years. So once we're starting to talk about this kind of time scale, we're out of, we're not deep time, we're not geologic time, we're cosmic time. Mm. Um, and there's another story there as well, where there's a meteor impact site right beyond the ridge of where these stromatolites live. And then, you know, it's very, you know, it's sort of tantalizing to think that maybe something piggybacked on maybe a little cyanobacteria from elsewhere in the, in the solar system piggybacked on some meteorite and landed on that very beach. Mm. Who knows? <laughs> we can't say it didn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, these lines of thinking got me really interested in this idea of taking the deep time further into deep time and deep space. And so I spent the past year um, as an artist with the LACMA lab, so it's the art and technology lab, um, with this idea of coming in and exploring. So very much what I was talking about at the beginning when we're talking about you know being in Japan and searching for something and not knowing not knowing what I'm looking for, but just this, you know, that feeling of creative churn. Um, so I've very much been in that mode. So basically, I've wanted to continue to work with scientists. And um, so I began with um, spending some time at um, NASA JPL in Pasadena and SpaceX, um, and also um, was a visiting artist at CERN. Um, but most recently in the work that I had shared with you here is a photo essay that I did at NASA Ames. Um, and so... The idea with the photos there was to look at the visuals of what you know what what's the what's the entry point into this way of thinking. Um, you know, NASA Ames is one of the older NASA sites. In fact, it used to be a NACA site before <laughs> NASA existed. Uh -huh. I mean, before and before the S was added for uh -huh. space. So uh -huh. an important differentiation. Um, so this, the actual facilities there look quite dated. Um, they look of a particular time, and that time was around the excitement of the moon landing. And so there's something there that tethers it very much to something in the past, and yet there's still active work there. It's still looking towards the future. Some of it you can see just visually without... Uh, having for other information. In some ways, it's very cut off and unclear. Mm -hmm. There's, in some places, there's machinery that's just been decommissioned and sitting in an open lot. Mm -hmm. You know, one of those things is the the twin of the of the space station. The International Space Station mm -hmm. oh, is wow. sitting in a lot with a tarp over it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So there's wow. something incredibly poignant yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's, it's... I watch a lot of, I'm not a big reader these days, unfortunately. <laughs> I should be on this stuff, the science stuff, but I watch a lot of, I, I just devour most of like the, the space programs I can, you know what I mean? The Universe was a really good one I like. There's a few other ones that I, I, I watch and you try to like, like get a grasp of it. I have to watch the shows because they do it in a way that's they can explain it to someone like me, right? <laughs> you get kind of like too, too deep into it and you get lost on it. But I think like, um, I don't know. Like we were just talking today about how we're gonna get the the the, the exploration out to Pluto, and we're gonna get the first photos back of of Pluto. And this, the show I was watching was saying every time we do one of these expeditions to the outer planets, the first photos they get back always completely defy their expectations of what we, what we know or think about that planet. You know, so it's always you know. 
I'm always just curious of like those small little leaps that we make, but it seems like the older I've got, we can kind of see it happening. Like I would never, I remember when I first heard about exoplanets and you're like, what? They're going to like be able to take pictures of no way. And then over the years they keep like collecting more and more. And now, now they, they feel like they're going to have the ability to kind of like really photograph like these exoplanets. You're like, how? I don't understand this, you know? So I think it's, you know, seeing like those gradual, gradual shifts, like in your own lifetime just becomes this kind of like perplexing, like, are we going to discover aliens before I die? Like what's going <laughs> right. to happen? You know what right. I mean? Like, so I don't really know if I have a question. Well, I have an answer. <laughs> yeah, though. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. really interesting thinking about these things in terms of how far these things have progressed mm. in such a short period of time. And in some ways, to me, Ames really typifies that in that it feels so dated mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. of a moment that's past. And in fact, the title, the working title of the series is This Used to Be the Future. <laughs> um, right. So there was, and I've talked about this with people at all Every space agency I've visited have talked about uh, just the sort of mournful lamenting the time that we've never had the energy and excitement about exploration, about space exploration since the moon landing. Mm -hmm. That it's never, even though we've done things technologically that are... (laughs) <laughs> to use space, but like light years ahead <laughs> right, right. Um, of of that yeah. achievement, we don't have that shared sense of excitement. And I also wanted to touch on something that you had said earlier. This question about you know what is the intention behind the space travel and exploration, and that's a really important and interesting question. Um, so there's sort of this difference between knowledge for knowledge's sake and first do no harm approach versus is a manifest destiny approach. And that's something as a as a species we should be wary of. Yeah. We don't have the best track record track record. <laughs> right. um, and in fact, you know, at Ames, this became palpable for me. And I'll say that I entered into this idea of working in uh, ideas around space rather naively, mm-hmm. sort of for, not forgetting, but sort of putting aside all of the military aspects of why space exploration was even funded in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so sitting out in a parking lot at Ames is one of the first nuclear missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have an image looking into the nose cone with just the, you know, the little dongle where you'd plug in your nuclear warhead. <laughs> And it's sitting next to a, yeah. a decommissioned McDonald's, which is now one of the moon research offices. So there's something quite surreal and yeah. strange yeah. about that combination of things. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's no, that's because you, you want to, you know, you always, I wonder like how, how, how is that? How are we even still funding that stuff? It's like almost miraculous that there is any funding whatsoever to do that because it almost seems like. You did have the moon, you go to the moon, like, okay, that's something we can all kind of like, oh, you see the man on the moon now, but like when a space probe goes out and then you get a picture back, it's kind of like, you know, what what does that really do for us? And you think it's just like that idea that we don't, it doesn't feel like a, a, a grand achievement anymore, that we need something like going to Mars or something big like that to really recapture the imagination? It's a good question. I don't have an answer for that. I mean, my my feeling about about space exploration is that it's vitally important. Mm-hmm. I mean, the more we know, the more we know. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention the nature of discovery in and of itself, which is often that 
we end up figuring things out that weren't the problem that we were trying to solve. This has happened time and time again for thousands of years. I mean, we know historically that this is often the case that, you know, you set out to do solve one problem and you end up solving something else. So I believe in blue sky science. I also believe in blue sky art. Uh, <laughs> that was nice. I've never heard what's, what's blue sky science and blue sky art. Well, so imagine uh, <laughs> getting a grant uh, based on the value of your idea, not knowing what your outcome is going mm -hmm. to be. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, I was, I was thinking about that when I was visiting at CERN and they're talking about fundamental physics. Mm -hmm. So what's the value of the Large Hadron Collider and understanding the Big Bang? And, you know, there's this fundamental idea of understanding mm -hmm. the nature of the universe as a way to fully, more fully understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think art can do the same thing, mm -hmm. that if you begin something with an open mind and a creative process and the desire to figure figure something out, to work through it, you don't know what the result is when you first get to work. But so that's the sort of blue sky, the blue sky approach, right, which right. rarely happens in the arts. It does yeah. sometimes. Um, I mean, and even in the sciences, I think uh, the sciences obviously tend to be better funded than the arts. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. And, you know, I think artists and scientists, mm -hmm. though, approach problems very much mm -hmm. the same way. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of scientists, you'd be shocked speak about their work the same way that artists do. Mm -hmm. Although one difference is I don't really know any scientists who are doing the work if it didn't get funded, oh, right, whereas right. most artists are not getting funded and doing it Still anyway. Still doing the work, right. Right, so they gather relationship to the funding and to what, what they're doing, their purpose is a little bit different. Um, no, I think that's about the, about the art as kind of like the discovery. I think that it's, the deeper I get into my own kind of like work and it's like, you're right. It's like starting out with that hunch. And then when you're out and the more you're out doing it, the more like feedback you get, you look at the pictures, you, you think more of it. Like I've been going, I go out to Long Island and I'm taking, I use it as an escape and I take pictures to get out of the city and like I go out to Long Island. And I was, I didn't really know what, why am I going out here first? But then I said, well, well it's one of the oldest suburbs in America, right? Okay. It's this very kind of colonial aspect as well too it's extremely wealthy and all that stuff was like that's interesting but w I was walking around the neighborhood on like some Sunday afternoon it was eerily quiet and I just had this flashback to like being a kid walking around my neighborhood and I was like this is really kind of like I'm making a connection here between you know my sense of growing up in the suburbs and then escaping now where I live in the city going back out to the suburbs but it wasn't like that wasn't the first thought that went into my mind right. when right. I started going out to Long Island but yeah. it just kind of took being out there to realize make those connections and I don't know what it really means or it means anything other than just escaping but it, it goes back to that point of like once you get out doing it you start to figure it out you know right well and if we can be more supportive of both the creative process the scientific mm -hmm. process understanding that sometimes discovery comes when you're not expecting it that you need some room to breathe mm -hmm. and you need some room for the creative the churn yeah. <laughs> takes up some physical space it takes up some resources yeah. but there's immense value in it yeah. and you know both in the arts and the sciences that we tend to have such rote methodologies uh -huh. of it must be done this way or it has to be done with this kind of funding or you're responsible mm -hmm. to this you're answering to this stakeholder we're, you know not that good work can't happen through those means uh -huh. but we've just we're cutting ourselves off at the knees to not 
nurture these other potential avenues. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, both art and science, I think, is about knowing ourselves and mm -hmm. the world coming to know itself through more understanding and through creative output. Wow. Well, I think that's. I think we're gonna take a quick break, <laughs> get get some water. But we're gonna come back. The books you brought are like right on the spot. And we're gonna the conversation will continue. And we're gonna talk about some great books. Sounds good. Ninety degrees on Puerto Rican day here in Bushwick. Someday we'll have a fully air conditioned studio if we ever get that funding. <laughs> please you know? invite me back. Yeah, then. Please, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's uh, you know nothing wrong with a little sweat. Yeah, it's kind of like the sweat lodge effect. You know, like, <laughs> yes. It's kind of like you meditate, get dizzy, and then maybe some sort of insights come through. I don't know. Great. It hasn't happened for me. <laughs> maybe for the guests, but. Uh, Okay, so now we have no fan. And we're talking about Cosmic Graphics, Picturing Space Through Time, Michael Benson. So why did you bring this book? Well, I mean, we've been talking about space, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, it seemed yeah. like a logical, a logical choice. Uh -huh. Now, I, I really love this book because it really is at its heart talking about our ideas and conceptions about space over time. So mm -hmm. it has some very old historical images. It has some new images like the cosmic microwave background and mm -hmm. really highlights the way our knowledge and belief systems have changed about you know the solar system mm -hmm. and the universe over the years. And to me, it gets really interesting when you start to look at where the astrophysics and the philosophy sort of slip together. Mm -hmm. So where things start to be just an idea and then we learn a little bit more of the science um, and all of these are mediated through some sort of creative experience so mm -hmm. some of them are computer-based some of them are completely hand-drawn we have things that really run the gamut of we, we see the technologies change mm -hmm. as our knowledge changes as well yeah absolutely one of the um the one that you showed us that I thought was really kind of like was the, how the Mississippi River changed mm -hmm. over time. And for what I was like, I felt like really stupid there for a moment. I was like, <laughs> wait, the river wasn't just always that way. And it was like, I caught myself thinking like, you idiot. No, of course not. And like once you started explaining it that, you know, that it chooses the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. And like that's how it carves its way. And it was like. Huh, that does make sense, you know? Right. I mean, that kind of thing is fascinating, yeah. but it's also something that's exactly what we were talking about earlier in terms mm -hmm. of not having a point of reference in our day to day lives. So you need to have some kind of illustration to mediate that for you mm -hmm. because we don't see geologic time on a day to day basis, which is how fast that river is changing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of those things where you can create something that is just a gorgeous visual that also has all these layers of meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. So you can get drawn into it just from the beauty of the illustration. And then once you get 
once you've read what's going on there, then you have that other sort of intellectual burst that brings it all together. Yeah, yeah. The one of the the sunspot. It's, I don't know where that one is. Uh, you're just uh, this one. Yeah, this yeah, one's yeah. Fine. yeah, yeah. I think you're actually looking at like magnetic lines in that, and it's oh, like right, something you right, can't right. usually visualize. But when you see like these these lines in a solar flare or mm-hmm. um, a sunspot, you can actually see the like lines of electromagnetic. I was wa- I was just watching one episode and they were talking. It was about eclipse, like the full eclipse of the sun, and they're like. We know very specifically right down to the second when the next one is and right exactly where you have to be and like it's it's what it's called I don't know what the path is called but they call it the, you know there's a certain path where you can see the full eclipse and it's like you really should you know try to get there and see it in your lifetime because it's like nothing you've ever seen before you know but they isn't that the first time, like once they started looking at the eclipses when they understood the corona mm-hmm. of the sun right so they they could see it but that was how they so confidently just said, yes, down to the second. We know exactly <laughs> what it's going to be. It's like, I was like, but wait a minute. How do you know? I mean, I guess so, I always want, like, I, I believe in science. I'm, I'm fully, but part of, part of me too is like, well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. How, how are we so certain though? How are they, you know, so certain? Because you like, a lot of times I've heard like physicists and natural physicists say like, yes, we know a lot, but we actually know nothing. <laughs> right. We're so ignorant, yeah. you know? So I'm, I, I kind of get caught between, it's like, well, I think both, I, you know, both are them? true. Yeah. I think both things are true. I mean, I think we've touched on a really interesting point with talking about the sun and, and electromagnetism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many things that we cannot perceive without the aid of instruments. And when we look at these gorgeous space photos, mm-hmm. like nebula and, and other galaxies, we're not just looking at a snapshot that some equipment out in space made. Um, there's a lot of layering that goes on. And this was something that I wasn't really aware of. I didn't really think about how does that get made? It was like, oh, well, some of that is a layer of infrared information that somebody made a decision about how to visualize. You know, so there's even in that purely, you could call it a purely scientific endeavor, there's obviously some very human creative decision making going on. And that might might be to indicate, well, the red is indicates one thing, the blue indicates something else, but it's still a visual choice that's being made. And so to me, that's fascinating because it's a reminder that there's so much that we can't perceive. Mm-hmm. So of course we don't know anything, <laughs> right, you know, right. but we do know something. Yeah, yeah. So they both can be true. So do you think those are photographs or are they, do, would you consider those photographs of like the nebulae and like the, you know, when we're taking a look at far-flung galaxies do you consider those actual photographs i do i mean they're Um, about light i mm. mean which is you know we were talking about the cosmic microwave background Mm -hmm. that's referred to as the baby picture of the universe is that a photograph well no it's a radiation heat map Mm -hmm. um it took me i I spoke to a couple of different cosmologists and astrophysicists Mm -hmm. about that to really help me understand what does this mean what do you mean the (laughs) earliest light yeah what does that mean and how can it still be there? Also, light is traveling or the photon static. Mm-hmm. And then so just breaking it down and understanding that it really is a heat map. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason also that we can't look back further is just because we don't have the technology to penetrate mm-hmm. the dust cloud. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all these things that they're true, but we get the sort of, you know, it's filtered mm-hmm. down to us through the mainstream media in a way that's often oversimplified. Mm-hmm. And so then once you start 
pulling apart the layers, like understanding again, like the all of these gorgeous space images mm-hmm. that they're not just like, oh, I want to be a space tourist so I can see that yeah, beautiful yeah, sight. Yeah. It doesn't look like that because you're still a human being mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're out there. Um, right. So yeah, I think it's just more complex than that. Yeah, and I. I Getting back to the, like the photo, like I still I cannot wrap my head around like the the one is like the pillars of creation, right? right. The one most famous yeah. pictures in forever is like oh that's amazing, and then I finally kind of like did research on it, and there was always that footnote where they're like oh, and it's believed that the pillars of creation were destroyed like yeah. two point five billion years ago by like a exploding star, and it's yeah. like what. Not even there anymore. Like I, I can't. How does it work? We take <laughs> yeah. a picture of something that doesn't exist anymore. Like, You're I, actually touching on one of yeah. the ideas that I had through my experience with the LACMA lab, mm-hmm. and this is not a photography project, but it is about light, and it's exactly about what you're talking about. Right. So the idea is um, a light installation called Dead Stars, mm-hmm. and it's precisely about this idea of looking up into the night sky and seeing things. We see them and perceive them, but they're not really there because the light took so long to travel to us. So I wanted to play on that with an accurate map, like an accurate starscape of stars that we see that aren't Mm -hmm. there. And then although you can even pull that apart a little bit and say, well, the photons are there and the photons have some mass, so it's there, but it's not Mm -hmm. what you think it is. (laughs) It's not when you think it is. It's not where you (laughs) think it is. And to me, that's part of the mystery of the universe because Mm -hmm. it sort of does not compute. And yet you can see, you can understand why that would work. So my idea is to create something that would have this immediate... This, uh, mm-hmm. visual, visceral experience, right. but also be based in hard mm-hmm. scientific data. Because yeah. I'm always like, we can do that. We can take the picture of two billion years ago, but we can't take a picture of like 150 years ago on the earth, right? Like we can't point right. a camera why and say, why can't we take a picture from 18 of 1865? And like it doesn't, <laughs> you know, right. like I'm trying, right. try to figure it out. And yeah. it's like it be, the mathematics become too crazy. But then it's like, is some other you alien. You start talking about some different dimensions. Right, and exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, maybe speaking of what we can't see and can't perceive, you know, but maybe there, maybe there's alien civilizations out there that are pointing like, could tell it and they're they're looking at us and like there's, there's a bunch of reptiles walking around like who cares about this place you know more LTV show listeners right right <laughs> getting into dinosaurs in space we veered off topic yeah. <laughs> but speaking of things that you cannot see or perceive or like that are right in front of us or that we know the next book we have is, is an American index of the hidden and unfamiliar so this goes into this goes into a whole different this is Terrence Simon by the way which I'm, 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 I really like her work a lot, it's particularly this one. Um, and this, the, what it's always struck me about this work is that it's so precisely about access, you know, getting access and how difficult it is to mm-hmm. get access to these things. So I guess I'll throw it back to you and like what what made you bring this book and why did you want to share this one? Sure. Well, in this book, I feel like there's a, I see a sort of kindred spirit in terms of process, mm. um, less so in product or output, but more so just in the fact that it's a conceptual work. It's based on the idea of the underpinnings of the working of, of, of American society and infrastructure about the things that we don't see or recognize every day but are part of that. Um, it is about access, certainly, so and the difficulty in getting access to a number of these places. And it's photographs supported by writing. The writing is absolutely critical to the understanding 
of the meaning of this work. Mm -hmm. And so in all those ways, I relate creatively mm -hmm. to, to this, mm -hmm. to this particular well, you project. Can I mean, yeah. you can definitely see the influences. Um, and I, so something about, do, do you ever, and this just kind of popped into my head, do you ever foresee yourself doing a project where you have no writing or do you think it's so tied like intricately tied into your process at this point that you you know it's not you couldn't conceive of just doing <laughs> just doing like a picture of fifty beautiful photographs or something like that. Oh you know? yeah, no, I'm not ruling anything <laughs> out. I mean, you know, I you know, I'm continuing to make landscape work uh -huh, that really uh -huh. isn't. I mean, that's really mm -hmm. about emotional and philosophical response, not about mm -hmm. uh, particular modes of thinking and being mm -hmm. or writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the writing wouldn't be critical mm -hmm. to something mm -hmm. like that. And likewise, I have a number of other little project ideas that I want to do that aren't, that aren't writing based and aren't photography right. based either. Um, but, you know, I didn't actually set out doing the oldest living things thinking I was a writer. Mm. So that's something mm. that the project required mm. and something that I am happy to explore with this new work about mm. space because that makes, you know, where it makes sense, the writing will be there. But it's like any artistic media or process, creative process, you want to use the medium that best expresses your ideas. Right, 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 absolutely. No, these Ter Terrence Simon is, I don't know, there's so many of these pictures that I just think are military operations on urban terrain virtual simulation. I mean, she just touches on so many of the, the tropes of even, like, visual language that I think are pretty amazing, too. Um, well, she presents them in such a matter-of-fact way. I mean, this mm -hmm. book is obviously meant to replicate an old encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. There's something about this that's very... The writing is is very dry. Mm -hmm. It's impersonal. It's very matter-of-fact. And I think that works cohesively mm -hmm. in, this, in this body of work. Mm -hmm. That's very different from the way I approached Oldest Living Things, where it's a combination of... There's scientific facts, but it's also mm -hmm. very personal. It has some philosophical musings in it. It's just meant to evoke a whole other mm -hmm. kind of feeling in it. Um, and they're just quite different in that way in the, in the output. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I should get that book. <laughs> it happen, book. It happens a lot on this show. I look at it and say, like, oh, right. let me have it now. Please give it to me. You know, Suddenly your shelf is a little emptier. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So uh, Hiroshi Sujimoto, who's a pretty well-known photographer, I'd say. And this one, is this is uh, his seven days and seven nights. Now we go, but we this kind of like ties in... It's a little bit what we were just saying, like the simplicity of, of his photographs, and but he still has the captions too, you know. He does. And like the, the the place and the time, the year, and what do you call this binding? Oh, I don't know. I mean, so this is a catalog from his exhibition mm -hmm, at Kagoshin, mm -hmm. and uh, that I I'm not up on my, my I, binding not, terminology, should, but it, it's yeah. I mean it's sort of this an accordion fold, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's all one piece, um, but it's yeah, it's a beautiful, Tom, beautiful catalog. Yeah, Tom, you're making us look bad. It's like you're doing a <laughs> podcast on photo books, <laughs> and you oh. fools don't know anything <laughs> about, about binding. Yeah. We should. You would think the guys doing the photo were like, no, we just kind of uh, like looking at the pictures yeah. and talking about the ideas. You know, it's like looking at pictures. We'll bring. We'll We'll bring on, yeah. We'll bring on, we'll bring on a publishers or yeah. designers at some point to explain all that. Do a whole glossary of the different types. They will humble us. But yeah. I feel like binding aside, there's some real significant <laughs> things to talk about yeah. with Sugimoto's yeah. work. And yeah. the reason I brought this is I saw a show of his at, at the Met that I believe was in 1995 or 96. It was the first year that I'd moved to New York, mm -hmm. and there was a whole room full of daytime seascapes and a whole room full of nighttime seascapes. And I couldn't move. Like I was just 
completely entranced and glued mm-hmm. there. Um, and it was one of the more profound moments I've had in a direct experience with art. Mm-hmm. And it had nothing to do whether if it was photography or not photography or whatever it was or the titles or just it. I was just, you know, The prints themselves are luminous. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something about the subtlety and seeing the volume of the work and the carefulness involved in it and that they were just communicating something beyond what you were actually looking at. Mm-hmm. And I'd say I have a similar feeling looking at Rothko mm-hmm. um, so that there's this connection to something other than what you're the actual literal thing mm-hmm. that you're looking mm-hmm. at. So yeah, I mean I, I believe I you know I I definitely believe that in the the photograph can do it. I mean I just do I do. I like you can, if you get a fo- really good photograph, beautiful photograph, composition like it's all there and it's like you just feel it. Nothing else needs to be said, you know what I mean? I don't but I think what happens is, to me is like especially in photo land it's like people kind of like they fall into their camps or they reduce it to like this is the only way photography can be. Or then you get other people who's like, well, photography is so classic and boring. It's like, but sometimes I'm like, well, the, the classic kind of just go on and make photos works for me as well, too. It's very contextual, you know. It's, yeah. I guess it comes down to just if you do it well, you know what I mean? <laughs> I think you hit <laughs> you know, the nail on the head. Yeah. I mean, it's important for us to reflect on what kind of work is being made, but there's, I see no reason, especially as an artist, why would you pigeonhole yourself? Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like make what you feel, mm-hmm. <laughs> make what you feel. That's the, that's the way, that's the yeah. way to go. Yeah. And I just, I, the, the longer I've, you know, I haven't quite got to the level you are <laughs> with your art, but I think the longer I've been, you know, pursuing it, and I do it just because joy, intellectual stimulation, I can't, I can't imagine not, not doing it and going out making photographs because there's so many other rewards other than, oh, hey, here's my book dummy. I'm going to make, you know, it's kind of like the fact of we going again to like being out in the world for one thing. It's like just being out in that place. And it's like, why am I in the middle of Long Island on a Saturday? Well, it's like, why not? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what can, what can I learn from taking this walk? You know? So I think, yeah, I mean, I, I just think you, any artist who feels like they, completely understand their their process or any process I think is like you're full of shit no <laughs> artist does no it's always kind of like that exploration and that that learning you know so I think I mean that's why they little same thing is kind of a beautiful thing you started out with the seed and then it became it's almost like that perfect perfect storm of accumulating the the knowledge and the research making the photographs and you kind of go deeper into it I almost see like it could be a movie you know what I mean <laughs> you should sell the movie rights they are available. <laughs> ah, they are available. Anyone listening out there? Yeah. I mean, you got the great stories from it, too. I can imagine. like I, op- do, I do have a travel story or two. Yeah. True. I mean, just imagine, imagine like the opening scene, you're like lost on the fjord, you know? There it's you like, go. It'd be, it'd be beautiful. Does yeah. anyone know Steven Spielberg? <laughs> or uh, Terrence Malick, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be interesting. Uh, cool. So is the earth a living organism? You know, it's a really interesting question and one that I have thought about quite a lot. And in fact, relates to the space idea as well, because I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be quite a grand finale to leave Earth's atmosphere and photograph Earth from space? Um, That hasn't been something I've actively pursued. And I think it really is in answer to your question, is Earth a living organism? It's a living system in my mind. In some ways, you can categorize it as a living organism 
depending on how you categorize it. Um, but it felt to me, if I were to put all my energy and resources towards taking a commercial space flight in order to make snap an image of Earth from space, it didn't seem substantive enough for me. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in a way that the other the other subjects of the project, it felt very important. I'm not taking Google satellite images. There was something mm -hmm. about the exploration and, and being connected with these things and making photographs on the ground that were quite important. Um, if my thinking changes about the nature of the world, I'm not going to rule it out, but <laughs> it's, it's not on the docket at the moment. That's, yeah, I mean, I think that was a great question, Tom. Um, I, was, I mean, I kind of was like... I was wondering about that too. Is like, are you going to take pictures of space eventually, or try to do get into that? And you, you were talking before, like all the complications that go into it. And they say you're not a scientist, you know, like only right, scientists, right, yeah. scientists can take <laughs> pictures of space. But I'm just, I'm wondering if the technology will kind of like catch up, or they'll be. You oh know what yeah, I mean? I mean the technology has, has changed quite mm -hmm. a bit. The not a scientist when when I was trying to get access to a very high level <laughs> yeah, observatory. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. you know, and still could yeah, happen. Yeah. We'll see. Um, but yeah, that that's a uh, there's so many things available tools available on a consumer level to be able to make images uh -huh. of space and then and also smaller observatories uh -huh. where you know people aren't waiting years in line to get their chance on the telescope uh -huh. they might not need an artist getting in their way right, right. Um, so absolutely I will I mean I think that it's something again that I'm still in that phase where I'm mm -hmm. searching because to me it's not enough just to make an image of space because right. they're gorgeous I mean they are mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to just get lost in that like mm -hmm. I, I want something that will make that other connection, that spark um, that feels like you've learned something or something mm -hmm. feels true mm -hmm. about it. And I don't I'm not entirely sure what that is yet. Absolutely. So I have one final question. I want you've you've actually taught us a great deal today. So oh, thank hey, you. Yeah, thank welcome. you very much. Yeah. I mean, it was very I mean, a <laughs> lot to think about. And I hope everyone listening goes away with a lot to think about as well, too. But I just want to have you like you spent so much time with a lot of these scientists and I'm just wondering like if, if there's if there's kind of one little nugget of like wisdom or insight or something that just has really stuck with you from one of the scientists that just kind of like you always kind of keep that in your you know as an aphorism or just kind of like a, <laughs> an idea or something that, hmm. that really stuck with you over the years. I mean I don't think that I'm not sure how uplifting this is but just <laughs> the uh, you know it was interesting to me to learn how segregated different scientists can be or just so many scientists are mm -hmm. that because of the way that we've established scientific inquiry it's ever specializing which means that people who are doing very related things might never speak to each other would never cross paths and to me that was this profound oversight in the way that we're doing work mm -hmm. in the world not that there's to devalue this you know concentrated detail work in particular, drilling down into particular areas, but that we are missing the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And so to mm -hmm. me, that was the most profound thing that I came away with. And in part, you know, I see that's one of the places mm -hmm. where art can bring the most value. So being free from those expectations of working in a particular way, mm -hmm. you know, I can introduce a scientist in South Africa to a scientist in the Mojave Desert mm -hmm. because they're doing something related but never knew it. And that to me was, that for me personally was really exciting, but also just, it was a reminder, as we were saying earlier, that there's so many things, which is true. We know a lot or we don't know anything. <laughs> They're both true. <laughs> 
Wow. Well, that's a great way to end it, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. And congratulations. I mean, on the book and like the, the, your show is going on. I mean, and the new project, it all sounds amazing. We definitely have to have you on again. <laughs> thank you. I hope you hope you'll join us again. And again, just thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. You can go behind the scenes of this episode, see the work of our guests and the photos we discussed by visiting our Tumblr and lpvshow.com. The LPV Show is executive produced by Brian Formals and co-produced by Tom Starkweather and Eddie Volante. Our score is by Tom Starkweather, who also mixes the show. Thanks again for listening.